The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Welcome to Squawk Box. Here are your headlines. President Trump threatens to escalate the trade war with China if a deal can't be reached. He keeps markets on edge as he says an agreement is near while giving little detail on negotiations. We're close. A significant phase one trade deal with China could happen. Could happen soon. But we will only accept a deal if it's good for the United States. The U.S. president also renews his attack on the Fed ahead of Chair Jerome Powell's testimony before Congress, calling on the central bank to follow others into negative rates. Asian stocks slide on the continued uncertainty surrounding trade, while the ongoing unrest in Hong Kong also weighs on equities. And Tesla CEO Elon Musk says he will build a new factory in Berlin as the electric car maker makes its first manufacturing foray into Europe. Plus, in the energy world, the IEA says it expects global energy demand, global oil demand, to slow from 2025 as the world pivots towards more electric and more fuel-efficient methods. We're going to be speaking to the executive chairman of the IEA, Dr. Fatih Birol, at 1200 Central European Time. President Trump has given mixed signals on a potential trade deal with China during a campaign-style speech to the Economic Club of New York. Hopes had run high that he would announce concrete details of the Phase 1 pact. However, he provided little clarity on how the negotiations between Washington and Beijing are going and only went as far as saying how, quote, close the two sides were to an agreement. But the U.S. president also warned of the consequences if negotiations fall through again. If we don't make a deal, we're going to substantially raise those tariffs. They're going to be raised very substantially. And uh, that's going to be true for other countries that mistreat us, too, because we've been mistreated by so many countries. It's hard to believe. There are a few that haven't mistreated us. And, you know, I can't blame them if you can get away with it. Thomas Kostek has joined us, senior U.S. economist at Pictet Wealth Management. Thomas, welcome. Good morning. Nice to see you. I want to ask you about what we saw yesterday, because the market was hanging its hat on at least a a timing, a date when there might be a signing of phase one agreement without much more detail. But we didn't get that. So what do you make of how much more time the markets will give Trump to come up with phase one? Well, I think you're right. I think that, you know, Trump was very uh, short on substance yesterday. He didn't uh, give any timeline. Uh, I remind you that the deal was supposed to be signed actually now, mid-November in Chile. Uh, now we're speaking about potentially December. We still do not know the place. Uh, so we are very much in the in the dark. Um, you know, we still think some sort of um, a deal will be signed. But, uh, you know, that's going to be short on substance. I mean, we're mostly speaking about bl- potentially lower tariffs that, you know, really you know, symbolically lower tariffs in exchange of, um, you know, more agricultural goods. So uh, more imports uh, of, you know, say soybean from the U.S. to to China. But that's likely to stay symbolical. I mean, we still remain really worried about the underlying tension between, you know, the U.S. and China. And we know intellectual property products are really a big issue in terms of the uh, the relationship. So they are really big 
uh, you know, problems and differences out there. Big mismatch in sentiment between the market now bidding up asset prices on hopes of a deal and, and many market watchers saying, well, even if there is phase one, some of this underlying tension between the two nations simply will not disappear. But when it comes to pen to paper and what is in that deal, there's been a suggestion, at least from the Chinese side, that tariffs must be reduced to even get to phase one of a deal. Trump was saying that uh, effectively they would raise tariffs on Chinese goods very substantially if China does not sign a deal. So we're right back to the situation where tariffs could be rolled back, or at least some of them will be rolled back potentially, or they could still go up again. So in that type of climate of uncertainty, what do you think businesses are trying to do at this point? Yeah, well, I think no matter what, I think businesses are going to still feel uncertain. Even if you lower symbolically, say, the last tariffs that were imposed in August, I think, you know, the harm has been done. So business confidence has been already hit. And I, th I think that's going to reverberate on business investment next year. So, I mean, that's for, for sure. So even if it lowers uh, some of the tariffs, business uncertainty will uh, stay quite, quite, quite elevated. So that's a problem. Uh, so I don't think, you know, uh, removing the tariffs will solve anything regarding the growth picture next, uh, next year. Um, the good news is that we have the Fed, and we'll speak about that. Um, the Fed is still there, growth supportive and so on. But, you know, from a trade tariff point of view, the harm is done. And again, I think the big issue with the, the elections next year is that even with a Democratic candidate, we know the situation won't, won't change. And we know we're, we're there for the long haul in terms of you know, trade tension with China. I think that's the unfortunate um, uh, story here. Now, a lot of commenters described the speech yesterday as more of a re-election campaign pitch than a message to Wall Street because, you know, he didn't comment, he didn't give any detail around trade, which the market was really looking for. Instead, he once again started bashing the Fed and called attention to the achievements that he's really, uh, he, he's accomplished over the last uh, three years, three and a half years in the presidency. So what do you think? Who was the audience for President Trump yesterday? Well, you know, it was really uh, an echo, uh, echo chamber here because Trump really repeated the same, you know, the same theme over and over. I and mean, what's interesting with Trump and where there's a break with, you know, uh, um, the, the usual line is that Trump likes negative rates. He, he likes those negative rates that are being put in, in Europe, which for America is quite a big deal, right? I mean, um, you know, people hate uh, negative rates in the U.S., but Trump likes them. Um, he also likes them because, you know, he sees negative rates in Europe as a way uh, for Europe to uh, manipulate the currency. And, you know, Trump probably would like a weaker dollar. Um, so also that's, that's why he's putting the finger on these negative rates in Europe. Thomas, thank you very much. We'll leave the conversation there for now. We'll pick up with you in just a bit. Uh, Thomas Kostok staying with us, senior U.S. economist at Pictet Wealth Management. Hong Kong's financial center remains locked down today as protesters attempt to paralyze the city-state's economy, saying they, quote, want the government to know we are serious about our demands. Protesters and law enforcers continue to clash throughout the night, just hours after the police superintendent warned Hong Kong was being pushed to the, quote, brink of a total breakdown. And with that context, let's just take a quick look at some of those markets in Asia and how they're faring. Juliana. Well, we're seeing another significant step down for Hong Kong equities. The Hang Seng is down more than 2%. So yesterday, we did see some stabilization come through in the Chinese markets, the Hang Seng, as well as the mainland Chinese equities. But amid the uh, ongoing unrest in Hong Kong that Karen just outlined there, we are seeing a pretty significant market reaction. Outside of Hong Kong, the Shanghai Composite uh, is down about a third of a percent. Over in Australia, the main benchmark there is also moving lower, down about 0 
0.8%. Over in Japan, the Nikkei 225, right alongside the broader region, we are seeing losses of around 0.85%. So altogether, a negative session uh, coming through for the Asian region. Let's take a look at U.S. markets, where things stood on Wall Street yesterday. Uh, Overall, I would say a little changed. Yes, we've got some green ink on the board here. The S&P 500 and the Nasdaq both ending in positive territory. The Dow unchanged on the day. A lot of focus, of course, on President Trump's speech yesterday to the Economic Club in New York, as we were just discussing. Uh, Overall, he really failed to deliver the details, uh, anything significant on the trade front. It was more of the same, more Fed bashing, more high highlighting President Trump's achievements and also, uh, of course, uh, being fairly uh, strong in his messaging around China, suggesting if we don't see a truce agreed, we will see more tariffs come through uh, from the U.S. So not a huge amount changed when it comes to uh, President Trump's rhetoric. Let's take a look at uh, dollar, uh, the dollar crosses and what we saw in FX markets. We're seeing a sterling and the euro trade slightly stronger versus the dollar this morning. Sterling holding around the 128.49 level, so really stabilization is the message there when it comes to uh, the uh, British currency. Uh, in terms of the yen, we are seeing a bit of uh, a bit of weakness versus the dollar. So uh, the dollar is up about 0.06% versus the safe haven yen. So that's the picture for FX markets. Putting it all together, the dollar index gained yesterday for its third positive session in the last four. Karen? President Trump has called on the Fed to lower interest rates below zero. The U.S. president used a speech at the Economic Club of New York to resume his ongoing criticism of the central bank's policy, saying the Fed's decision to keep rates in positive territory hurts U.S. competitiveness. We are actively competing with nations who openly cut interest rates so that now many are actually getting paid when they pay off their loan known as negative interest. Who ever heard of such a thing? Give me some of that. (laughs) Give me some of that money. I want some of that money. Our Federal Reserve doesn't let us do it. I wonder who is clapping there, clapping on negative rates. Is it the Europeans? The European not, journalists in the I'm audience? not so sure. Certainly not a lot of guests who cross our set. The Fed Chair Jerome Powell is due to begin two days of testimony in Congress on the state of the U.S. economy later today. The hearing comes after the Fed cut interest rates for the third time this year, citing a need to help support U.S. economic growth. Well, we're going to take a short break, but coming up on the show, find out how shale is set to keep the squeeze on OPEC producers. As we break down the latest IEA World Energy Outlook, more when we come back. A CNBC signature event. East Tech West, CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nansha, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend.
Welcome back to Squawk Box. Well, it looks like we're in for a negative start to trade here in Europe. According to opening calls, the FTSE MIB over in Italy is looking at a triple-digit loss at the open. This, of course, follows a weak session in Asia, as we just were highlighting before the break. The Hang Seng down more than 2% in the overnight session. So that weakness, that negative sentiment in Asia seems to be filtering through to the European markets. Let's take a look at U.S. Treasuries and see what the reaction has been like there. Across the curve, we are seeing a yields move higher this morning. The 10-year currently trading around 1.91%, all the way out to the 30-year, that's around 2.4%. So this is the picture for the U.S. Treasury curve. Karen. President Trump's economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, has told CNBC there'll be no easing of the current tariff levels on China until a trade deal is struck. You're not going to have one side or the other agree to any tariff adjustments until the entire deal is put together. Okay, let me make that as clear as possible. And the president has said again, since there's no formal agreement, uh, we can't say whether there'll be any tariff adjustments at all. It may be part of a package. If there is a package, I want to underscore if, because uh, the president has signed off on it yet. Um, but it is possible that a tariff adjustments would be part of this deal. It is possible. Jeff joins us now from the Asian trade hub of Singapore, where CNBC is hosting a special edition of Global Squawk Box. And Jeff, you found a gigantic indoor waterfall behind you, just as markets have been waiting for a watershed moment on trade that didn't arrive yesterday from President Trump. No, absolutely. And I like what you did there, Karen, because you linked in the water, but it's not a theme park. This is actually a, a Changi Airport. It's called the Jewel, and it's an immense shopping center with this big vortex uh, waterfall in the middle of it. Uh, so we did this Global Sport Box program this morning, and obviously one of the topics we covered off was just the chill as far as the trade war story is concerned that's fallen over Asian markets this morning. But there is something else that we got into, which I think you'll be interested in being fresh from the Web Summit in Portugal. And that's the fears of a tech winter in this part of the world as we uh, add up the losses that we saw at SoftBank and begin to ask questions about what the investment environment is going to be like for tech startups and unicorn wannabes in this part of the world. And we were fortunate to have on the program Nick Nash. Uh, now, Nick Nash is a familiar name in this part of the world because of his role at a company called C. Now he's branched out into his own venture capital business and he's looking for companies that he can take through second and third round funding. But what was interesting, and I learned a new word here and see if you can spot it when we play you the clip, what was interesting was how much he was talking about the need for profitability, not just moonshots that are going for land grab. So let's have a listen to what Nick Nash had to say about how the technical or the landscape for uh, tech-focused companies is now different out here in Southeast Asia. We have a new word we use to describe the kinds of companies we're looking for. We don't look for unicorns. We look for, in a Southeast Asian way, rhinoceroses. What do I mean by that? It's the humble, quiet, underappreciated company that's low at ground level. It's got a horn, but it is worth a billion dollars on a PE multiple, not on a revenue we multiple. Also- 
So I've expanded my, my vocabulary by another word in the tech space. Uh, we're having to learn about rhinoceroses now. Uh, there was another interesting uh, phrase I picked up here this morning, Karen. Uh, sunicorns. Sunicorns, companies that maybe will be unicorns, but they're not quite in that space yet. And I guess let's link these two stories together for a moment. If we fail to see any further progress on phase one of a trade deal, that will continue to undermine confidence around capex and investing in new business ideas. And of course, when that comes to the opportunity to invest in disruption and new technology, we may also see that go into a lower gear as well. And I'll wrap it up on that point and send it back to you in London. Jeff, uh, thank you for talking us through plant-based or uh, plant-eating mammals. Very much appreciate that, but all very important as we talk about the, the risk environment on the back of uh, the trade deal that has not been struck. We'll see if uh, we can incorporate that new term into our conversations today. If, if it, if it Which becomes one? Relevant. Sunicorns or rhinoceros? <laughs> however we say it. <laughs> rhinoceros is. I, I have to say, I didn't realize that was the plural. Can we just of, say rhinos? Uh, rhinoceros. I think we can go with rhinos. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, let's Let's talk energy and now global oil demand will see a quote material slowdown after 2025 as fuel efficiency and electrification increase. That's according to the International Energy Agency's latest report. However, global demand is not expected to peak within at least the next two decades. The IEA says it expects average annual demand to grow by around 1 million barrels per day over the next five years before slowing to just 0.1 million barrels per day in the 2030s. Stephen Hadley now join us with more from the Adipak conference in Abu Dhabi. Uh, guys, I think between you, you've probably yeah, hosted now uh, about a dozen panels. So talk us through some of the, the key themes that you're discussing over in Abu Dhabi. Yeah, I mean, no, no dramatic backdrop like Jeff. I mean, gosh, you look like Centre Parks, didn't it? But it's quite extraordinary. Have you been to a Centre Parks? No, no, you haven't got a young family like I have. You, you, it really is quite a treat. But look, we have done a lot of panels and we have been speaking to a lot of people. And it's very interesting to see what the IEA is saying as well. Because look, there is no doubt that people behind us at what is, I think, either the world's largest or one or of the one world's of the large. World, yeah. yeah, I mean, others may try and get that crown as well. They think that oil demand and uh, natural gas demand will be a huge part of the energy mix. At least until the middle of this century. I think that is an assumption which is hard to refute, even if you are the most uh, avid uh, climate change advocate as well. But the fact remains they are very concerned about the amount of capital that can go into this sector if indeed it is getting harder for many people to invest because of ESG reasons, certainly in the Western world as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. And the criticism that we've heard of late of the IEA and the way that they judge um, the world's energy consumption and what the world needs and what these IOCs need to do and these countries need to do to keep up. And it's going to be really interesting, I think, going forward to see as we continue to hit back on this U.S. energy dynamic. As you've mentioned many, many times, we're not talking about an American oil company, are we? We're talking about the private no. sector. And that's really important, isn't it? Because, I mean, you've been speaking to uh, a key administration official responsible for energy policy as well. And it's very difficult to nail down what is U.S. energy policy. We hear a lot of, uh, of fluff, quite frankly, about U.S. energy independence. Uh, but actually, surely the role of the federal government and the administration is just to lay the foundation foundations for the private sector to go forth and prosper. And that is what the likes of Chevron, uh, that is what the likes of Exxon and the other key U.S. shale players have done because the U.S. government has laid the foundations for them to go and do it privately, not 
at a federal level. Exactly. And what, that's what's really interesting, isn't it? Because we're talking about using, essentially, the U.S. energy dynamic or the U.S. energy industry as a proxy, potentially, for a U.S. foreign policy that a lot of people, particularly out here in this region, have, have had trouble really understanding over yeah. successive administrations, but even certainly in the last six to nine months. Let's listen to a conversation that I had yesterday with the Assistant Secretary of State for Energy Resources, Frank Fannin. U.S. position, you know, the, the architecture I described before was a, a kind of a, a, a split world where you've got producing countries and consuming countries. Um, the fact that the U.S. now straddles both of those uh, and is now the biggest producer in the world creates a whole host of questions. Um, I think that the United States is still reconciling psychologically as to uh, what that means. I think, the, as I mentioned in my remarks, I think the rest of the world is as well. Uh, you know, the, the, I would say that uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm a diplomat, um, but I think the, the, the person who probably has the hardest job convenient a meaning is, uh, is Mr. Barkindo, given the, the, the confederation of, of, of member countries. Um, I, I suspect OPEC will continue to endure, but uh, you know, and, and is relevant. Uh, but how do they respond to the United States, uh, given the way in which we operate? It's not a matter of government control. So that was the Assistant Secretary of State for Energy Resources. I thought this was a really fascinating conversation because essentially what I was trying to get out of him, which I kind of did but kind of didn't, was a, a real narrative for what, yeah. in terms of energy resources, what, what are we doing out here? What are we trying to sell to the folks sitting out, particularly in this region, no, about where I, the U.S. stands? I think stands? that's really easy. Oh. I think they're trying to sell products. Well, well there is that. But uh, I thought that was interesting. They're trying to sell oil field out. services. Have you seen the Schlumberger stand? Have you seen it's the Baker Hughes stand? There not are some very, very large U.S. corporations in oil field services. Of course, they're not trying to sell oil to this region, but they're no. trying to sell services to this region. And indeed, the technical abilities of the IOCs, well, sorry, we're not allowed to say IOCs anymore, the energy expertise of the many of these companies as well. But it's very interesting. We're talking about existential issues. We're talking about bigger issues. What about day-to-day -day management and supply? And of course, you're going to the Vienna meeting of OPEC on December 5th. A lot of speculation about what they will do next. Now, at the moment, they have an agreement to take 1.2 million barrels off the table exactly. until the end of the first quarter next year. Do they need to have deeper cuts in order to get the kind of price inflation they want to see or in whatever the underlying benchmark be is, you know. whether it's Brent, whether it's NYMEX, or whether it's the new Merban as well. But the fact remains is that there is a school of thought out there that says that the growth we are seeing in U.S. shale is beginning to roll over a little bit, beginning to peak a little bit, and that may do the work for OPEC themselves. And I think that that's what the United States is doing out here as well, because when he was talking about um, being having, he was basically saying that the energy uh, narrative needs to be a proxy for a foreign policy narrative because what do they understand if we are correct to say that the shale is dropping off they have to remember that they've been using this stick this weapon oil as a weapon quite effectively over the last couple of years and it's really i don't know how would you say it's made a lot of people uncomfortable in this part of the world so in terms of using energy as a proxy for a foreign policy it makes a heck of a lot of sense to yeah. put people out here and, and continue say, that conversation I, i'm gonna get a bit more extreme than you if i may um, mm. uncomfortable i would say downright angry actually in this part of the world because angry just, slash terrified yeah because i mean just from the angry point of view and i'll just say this from from the conversations that you and i've had with various secretary generals and key 
OPEC ministers over the last few years as well. To, to, to be accused of using energy as a weapon OPEC against the consuming nations, they get upset about that because they feel firmly believe for the last 40 years plus that they have been very reliable energy suppliers to and the that West. They've been very good and, to them. Yeah. And very, and so they are now, obviously, they've, they've had a vested interest. We know that they're not here for, for the love of the consumer. So they're here to make money for their countries and so that they can have economic development, and et cetera, et cetera. But the fact is, they think they've been very reliable as well. So to be called the enemy in this debate as well, they get very upset in this Absolutely. part of the world. And that was part of the conversation, really, about the, the psyche, the change in psyche yeah. 45 years ago with the oil embargo and the fact yeah. that the Americans have taken on in the last couple of years. How would you describe that attitude of U.S. energy independence? Exactly. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.